Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. But we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Though if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Be seated. It does my heart good to hear James Brunton read the word rubbish. <laughs> it seems like a thoroughly British word. <laughs> We want to welcome several people this morning, uh, Meg Wilkinson. Uh, Meg, if you're here, would you just stand or wave right there? She is. Let's welcome Meg. And also, uh, Matt and Savory. Matt and Savory, where are you guys at? Uh, I lost them. Right here they are. Okay, let's welcome Matt. You can read about all of the people that have placed membership with us in the bulletin today. There are some little bios in there about them. We hope that you will meet them personally, uh, welcome them, have a meal together, or something like that. So why don't we bow for a word of prayer? Let's do that right now. Father, we come to you grateful that you have brought people into this uh, body, to this church, to serve and to worship here. We're grateful that they're here for a time, and we pray that together with them that we could all raise up Christ, to honor and glorify him, and to rejoice in him. Whether our day brings good or whether our day brings suffering, help us to find our joy in Jesus alone. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on this church and on this place now. Be present powerfully among us so that as we open up scriptures, we can understand what you would say to us in our situation and context today through the words of Paul that are 2,000 years old. God, only you could do that, and we thank you because we know that you'll bring about changed minds and hearts and repentance and new fruit and new life in us through these ancient words of Scripture. It's in Jesus that we pray and in the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us that we hope and all here who agree together say, Amen. Amen. So the soldier stood at attention outside of the commander's tent holding his spear and shivering in his boots. It was cold. Some fresh snow had fallen. He had learned over many years how to manage the cold when he stood guard. At first his feet would tingle a little bit, but he would ignore it. And then his legs would get restless, and he would hold strong and stay still. But eventually, as the watch grew on, and he felt his eyes begin to droop and his nose turn towards the ground, he would permit himself a small stamping of the boots just to warm up his feet. Eyes alert, ears ready, at his post. 
He, he took great pride in standing there. He had earned this position through years of fighting on the fronts, and he had had to kill his men and win his way up, but he had been found trustworthy, and so eventually he was given this position of honor outside the commander's tent. Once in a while, he would even see the Lord himself pass right through past him, briskly with all of his attaches and men-at-arms around, and he would even get to salute the commander. He hadn't ever had a conversation with him yet, but let's be honest, for a man who started off the way he did, it was quite a thing that he ended up here. Now as the night wore on, one moment after he found himself drifting just a little, he thought he had heard a sound. He looked around a little bit and he listened. Was that a shadow? Something sneaking around in the dark? No, surely not. But a moment later when he heard another rustling, a crunching on the new snow, he tapped the arm of the soldier next to him, and he said, let's take a look. They move around the back of the tent, and what is it that he sees there lurking in the dark, this, this, this shadow that's lifting a knife and about to cut through the tent to sneak in, I guess assassinate the commander. They wrestle the man to the ground. They tie him up with ropes, and later they bind him with chains. They throw him in the prison, and they stand guard there all night. The commander didn't even lose a wink of sleep, never knew what had happened. The next morning... After the, the commander has woken up and had something hot to drink and some breakfast, one of his assistants mentions to him the close call of the night before and the two faithful soldiers who had protected his life. Bring them to me. I need to thank these men. He shakes their hands one at a time. What an honor. This is surely the, the highlight of the soldier's career. And then the commander says something unbelievable. Because of what you did for me last night, we're going to honor you tonight. We're throwing a feast in your honor. And that night at the feast where there's more to drink and eat than anyone could ever need. And women coming up and thanking the brave soldier. And men coming up and giving him whatever the ancient Roman version of a fist bump is. You know, bang a sword on your breastplate or something. What a man! The commander even places a crown on his head. Made of leaves and twisted branches, it's called a stauros, and it's an honor beyond honor. He wears it with pride at the banquet, and later it goes into a special box where he keeps only a very few treasured possessions. What's it like to be on top? To be at the pinnacle of your career? The highlight moment of your life. Have you ever had the best moment of your life? Trick question, of course you did. When I was 7 or 10 or 13, I had them all the time. Maybe you did too. You hadn't lived enough life yet to have had too many great moments, so every time there was a new zoo to visit or you had some award at school, it was the new best moment of your life. I remember in high school having a moment kind of like this. Although, so as not to brag too much, I guess I better tell you what it was really all about. I played varsity baseball for a little while, and I was okay. So for a year, I even got to start on the junior varsity team and lead the team in hitting. And boy, I thought I was a pretty big fish. Turns out I was just in a very small ball. <laughs> on the varsity squad, I worked hard every day. I showed up. I always brought my best. And I'm proud of that. But I didn't play much because the guy that started in front of me set records in our high school for top batting average and the most guys 
thrown out at second base by a catcher in the history of the Dubois area senior high school. And I watched him, and I warmed up the pitchers. So when awards night came, our senior year, I was surprised to see my name on the list. They went through one honoree after another, top batting average, most runs batted in, most strikeouts, and then they came to my place on the list. And Larry Mamula, whom we fondly called Senor Mamula, because he was also our Spanish teacher, said, and this year we'd like to honor award Josh Bundy with the Big Heart Award. <laughs> and they had made a plaque that said that. <laughs> I guess that was the top. <laughs> Think about how funny life is. Whenever I met Jenna, and we went on a date, Dinner at Table Mesa in Bentonville. It's a new top, y'all. <laughs> I dated a couple of girls. I had met many. This is a new top. And you think that I spent the night talking about the big heart award that I won in high school? <laughs> Man, if I would have, that would have been the end of the talk. <laughs> We're going to talk about today what we rejoice in. And it's because of what Paul says in Philippians 3.1. So I want you to see it with me, see the text of Scripture. What do we rejoice in? Finally, my brothers, Paul wrote, rejoice in the Lord. Now for those of you who have been following through the book of Philippians for several weeks now, taking notes in your notebooks or on the back of your bulletins or in your Bibles, you would recognize that this word, rejoice, is one of our key words in the book of Philippians. It is the book of joy isn't it? Paul, by now, has used words from this word group 15 times in the, in the very short book. And this is the 16th time. And he will do it another six times before the little short book is over. 22 times when he'll say rejoice or joy or something related to that. But out of the 16 that we've read so far, and I want you to take a note of this, this is the first time that he has said rejoice in the Lord. He's added on a new part, in the Lord. He has talked about joy. He has talked about the Lord. But now he's bringing the two together. He says rejoice in the Lord. He wants us to find our ultimate meaning in the story of Jesus that we've read several times and that I read again this morning at the communion service about Jesus emptying himself and Releasing his divine position to come to earth and save us through the cross and then be exalted. Even Jesus himself in the Gospel of John had, had said the same thing. He wants us to rejoice in him. But these, this is one important way that he said it that we looked at last week. In the Gospel of John, Jesus had said to the Jews that were arguing with him that he shouldn't make himself equal with God, uh, they, they were making scriptural points, and they knew those scriptures really well, he said to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Look at the words, come to me. Jesus is saying, just like Paul, rejoice in the Lord. You've got to find Jesus, you've got to find the man, the Christ, and know him in order to find salvation, to find what it means to be alive in God. So I was hoping that today 
we could read this again out loud together from Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And I know what it's like to sit in a pew and listen to a preacher. Just like the soldier in our little fictitious narrative at the beginning, the feet become a little numb, the bottom becomes a little numb, the arms become a little restless. So why don't we get you all involved and let's read it out loud together. Would that be okay with you guys? Can you give me an amen? Amen. Okay, good. So just a nice, even pace. You know, don't get too far ahead of me. Don't lag too far behind. Okay. <laughs> Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You've done very well so far, but we're only halfway done. That was the down part, how Jesus came down. This is the part about how God exalted him. Right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. So as Paul is asking us to rejoice in the Lord, it's this Lord that he's talking about. Not any other Lord of our imagination, not any other Lord that we have built for ourselves through our career or through any secular achievements, not even through religion or religious spiritual achievements, and not even our internal world, the way that maybe we have some moral achievements that we're proud of. It is this Lord and this kind of achievement that Paul's asking us to rejoice in. He continues by writing these words. Uh, and this is verse 2 and verse 3. Paul says, now, as a warning, as opposed to rejoicing the Lord, watch out. Do this, rejoice in the Lord, but watch out for this. He says, look out for the dogs. And there's going to be three things, and I hope that you'll mark them or circle them. Look out for the dogs. Why does Paul say, look out for the dogs? Paul once, you know, had a bad run-in with a pit bull. No. This is a term the Jews often used. We have a lot of records of this. They would call Gentiles dogs. Okay, the Jews would call Gentiles dogs. Is Paul talking about Gentiles? No, he isn't. He's talking about a certain subset of the Jews who really enjoyed calling Gentiles dogs and acting as if they were superior to these Gentiles. You see, they were at the top of the religious game, and those Gentiles were at the very bottom. And they liked to let them know that, so they would call them dogs. So Paul turns it around on them, and he calls this subset of Jews that would do that that have that kind of bias, he would call them dogs. The point two that Paul uses, says, look out for the evil doers. Okay, those who do evil works is literally what Paul says here in the Greek. This is funny because, again, it is, it is not about uh, the people who actually do sin. It's about the people who say they don't do sin. It's, again, about the subset of Jewish people. Not all the Jews. Some of them are wonderful. But the subset of people that thought they were so elite that they did these great works of, you know, uh, generous things for the world, and they were the most beneficent of all people, and they were just, you know, the ones who were doing all these good things. 
Paul calls them, who call themselves the good works people, he calls them the bad works people. So he turns it around on them. He says these are the bad works people. Then point three, Paul says this. He says, watch out for them who mutilate the flesh. Same group of people. Because they took great pride in a certain surgery called circumcision that was important in the covenant for the Old Testament scriptures for the people of God. But it was an act uh, that God asked them to do as part of the covenant people. It was not meant to make you better than anyone else. It did not make you superior. But they, we've got these people strutting around, acting as if we're the good works people. And we have all the right surgeries. And, oh yes, the rest of you are dogs, you see. And so Paul turns it all around on them. And he says, watch out for these kind of people who act as if they have arrived at the top. As if they know what it looks like to be in charge, to be the best. And then Paul does something really funny. Okay, he's going to say, they think they have it all, but they don't. He says, we, and by we, he's writing to Philippians, okay, like the soldier in our story who would have retired to Philippi, a retirement village for soldiers, who were Gentiles, who had never had circumcision, who had done a lot of killing and a lot of fighting. They wouldn't have been known for... Good works. They would have been thought of as dogs. And he writes to them, he says, we are the circumcision. Now he doesn't actually mean that all the Gentiles had the circumcision done. He says, they like to call themselves like the church. Well, guess who's the real the church? And then he's going to say, it's those who worship by the Spirit of God and whose glory is in Christ Jesus. It isn't people who are really the people of God who just have secular or religious or moral achievements that are greater than everyone else's. It is the people who find their glory and their rejoicing is in the Jesus story and who Jesus is. So Paul says we don't place any confidence in the flesh. And by that he just simply means human achievement. Whether it's secular, religious, or morally, we don't put our confidence in human achievement. But Paul, Paul, because he's Kind of funny like this. He goes, but if I was to boast about my human okay. He goes, but if I was going to boast, I got more than all you. If he was a good southerner, he said, I got more than all you all. He says, if I was going to do it, look at what he does. I myself have reason for confidence in human achievement. He said, if anyone thinks he has more than me, I have circumcised on the eighth day. See, for the Jews, it mattered not just that you were circumcised, but if you did it at the right time, because it was in their Torah. Not only do I have it, I have the best version of it. He says, um, I'm of the people of Israel, so I'm from the right nation. We are not with them. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Why is that important? Well, it was the first tribe God picked a king from. A pretty high privilege right now. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. That's quite literally saying, I have the best political party. Okay. He says, as to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. All those people who read the scripture wrong, they don't interpret it right, I set them straight. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is Paul's trophy case. He puts it all on display. He goes, here's all the things I gloried in, right? Top, center, yeah, this is... All the things I gloried in. Why does Paul do this? To make the point. Okay, to make the point. 
that glorying in Christ is, is better than this. Now, thank God that you and I don't do this too, right? I, I just want you to do a project with me today. I want you, like Paul, to write your sarcastic list okay, of what your human achievement would look like and what the very best ones are, and I want you to put them all in a column. Now you can start on it now, or you can do this at home. And I'm not kidding. You think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. I want you to make a list of all the greatest secular things you've ever done. What was the highest ranking relevant position? What was the greatest civic award you've ever received? The boards you've sat on or whatever. I want you to put your religious ones. What are the things about church that you know you've gotten right? I want you to write it down as a list. You think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. I want you to write it down. And I know a lot of you won't do this, uh, but I'm asking you to. If you need help, have your spouse write down the list of things you always talk about. <laughs> now, maybe don't actually do that, because I don't want to be responsible for damaging any marriages. But uh, the people around you know what you think your list of achievements is. If this helps you, what would be the things that you would put on a resume? That's a real advice. What would be the things that you would want somebody to know on a first date? Okay, and I want you to write down the list. I want us to each see the things that we sometimes think we glory. Okay, and these aren't bad things. They're good things that God has given us, but they have their place. Okay? Now listen, if I was to write Paul's trophy case in modern words for me, listen to how it might go. Baptized in the tenth year for the right reasons. Fully got under the water. <laughs> of the people of the church, of the tribe of Christ. A Christian of Christians. As to the new covenant, a restorationist. As to zeal, a persecutor of denominations. Man, I could cut my eighth grade Baptist friends in half before they even knew it was coming. <laughs> Turned out they were also my cousins, so that wasn't very good for <laughs> As to rightly dividing the scriptures blameless. I mean, can you feel it? What Paul's really saying to us? The things that we take pride in. Here's the, here's the only point of the sermon. This is it. This is point one, the last point. Okay. Anything that we elevate above the Christ of the Christ in will fail us. Anything that we elevate above the Christ of the Christ Him will fail us. It doesn't mean whatever Jesus we have in our mind. It means the Jesus of that song that Paul gave us. Because we have a lot of Jesuses in our mind. You've seen the paintings that are in churches around the world and in museums where Jesus looks like he's glowing, like he just came out of a nuclear reactor and survived it, right? He's got the halo going on and his clothes are pure white. He's the most Caucasian Let's be honest, beautiful dude you've ever seen. We all have pictures, but the picture Paul paints is Christ who let go of divine power and suffered death on a cross, which is his bloody, scarred, uh, dehydrated, withered self that God elevates back to glory. Okay, so it's the Christ of the Christ Him. Anything else that we elevate above that, secular achievements, religious or moral, are going to fail us. So the soldier retires to this little village where a lot of the Roman soldiers are going. He unpacks his belongings and in the box 
He takes out the stallions that he had won from the commander that, that one night that was just the peak of his career. And he hangs it up above his new bedpost in the little town, seaport town of Philippi. They've been giving little pieces of land out to retiring soldiers, and so he's moved in, and there's a lot of burly guys on the street. But the recognition he had won in his career has secured him a small job that will help him procure food in his retirement. He's going to guard the local jail. And as he stands out there one night in the cold, holding his spear on watch, alert, he feels his feet tingle and his legs become restless, but he has done this many times. He'll stamp his feet once or twice and stay firmly on guard. Even when his eyes begin to droop and he feels sleep coming over him, he rouses himself back to wakefulness. What was that he heard? A shaking of some chains. Well, the prisoners are often restless at night. It's probably nothing. Especially since those rascals, Paul and Silas, have got here. They're always up singing in the middle of the night and they often start preaching to the prisoners at 2 or 3 in the morning. The guard can hear it all, so he thinks to himself, well, it, it's surely nothing. And then he hears a creak, a creak that he's very familiar with, of an iron door swinging open. And he turns and he looks, he peers into the darkness, and the, the jail door is open. He goes inside and with his torch he sees that all the shackles are open and the prisoners are released and he can't count to see whether they're all there. Everything that he had taken pride in, all his achievements in life were about this and he has failed. And he draws his sword, his pride is shattered, he hovers over the point and This is what Paul is talking about when he says, Whatever I had gained, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. <laughs> he means that everything I had achieved was suddenly emptied when I realized I had failed. I had religious achievements of all kinds, but then I realized I had missed the Lord that they were pointing to. It, it gutted me. And, and the problem is, is, it doesn't matter whether our achievements that we hung our hat on it is being a great parent, someday your kids will embarrass and disappoint you, and it will gut you. Or whether it is being a career company man, sometimes they lay those guys off when they're 55, and they can't find a job. Whether my identity has been in being the best spouse that I could be, cancer robs us of the end-of-life fruit that we wanted to enjoy sometimes from those relationships. A, a single failure or brokenness in life often will just eviscerate us from the things that we had elevated above the Jesus story. So Paul says, whatever I had is now a loss for Christ. Indeed, everything was a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, again, like Jesus said, it's about coming to Jesus. It's about knowing Him. It's about the person and the relationship with Him. He says, for His sake I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish. There's our word, James. As rubbish. And this is a very dignified, sanctified, holified English translation. Of a very crude Greek word. That means a dumb heap. You have more colorful words for it than that. And let me tell you, Paul uses one of the most colorful ones available to him. To say, compared to Jesus, all the other things that I've worked at are like a dummy. It's only his story that makes me who I am. 
It's only his story that can't be taken from him through suffering or failure. I've considered all things rubbish in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so often we rush through those words and we think, well, those are nice sentiments about faith versus the law, but I don't need them because we don't live by the law. You know, the law and the animal sacrifices and the circumcisions and all that died out millennia ago. Thank goodness we're not legalists like that. But what would God say to you if he had a chance to talk to you today about the things you hang your hat on? I know that's a hard and a piercing question. But if you had to be honest with him today and say, this is the thing that I, that I identify in the most, what would it be? And if it's anything other than faithfulness to the story of the Christ of the song, we know it will let us down. But it's not that God is standing over you to say, Boy, you really blew it. You know, you picked something other than Jesus. You, you dog. God is standing over you saying, This is why I offered him to the enemies of him. So that he didn't, you know, he didn't return their violence for violence. He forgave them. So that when you were at your worst moment and you realized you had picked the wrong thing, you realized you could pick the right thing and have it. Through faithfulness to him. Through loyalty to Jesus. That it isn't too late to step into his story. Uh, Paul writes what we now sing as a song in our churches. I want to know Him in the power of His resurrection. Do you remember the song? I want to know Christ in the power of His rising. Share in His suffering. Conform to His death. Do you? I'm really not sure that that's what we made church all about in the United States. Do you want His suffering instead? Do you want to be conformed to that story so much that you will find your greatest glory is often when you have failed and God has restored, not when you have changed? The soldier hovers over the point of his sword and he's about to end his life on it. Because everything that he had done that was worth anything has been lost. His reputation is ruined from these, somehow these slaves without even weapons have broken out of his jail. And as he begins to plummet towards the sword point, he hears Paul say, stop. We're all here. And the man drops his sword. Can you hear it clatter on the stones of the street when it falls from his hand? And he turns and he looks at Paul and he says, all here. And he looks at that man, Paul, who he's heard preaching behind him in the jail night after night. And he says, but how can I be saved? Paul says, let me tell you the story of a man. But first, take us home and clean up these wounds a little bit. We're bleeding him. And he takes them home. He bandages them up. He washes them up. They tell him about Jesus. I'm sure they sang that song or something like it to him. And the man finds his deepest identity, his truest self in the story of Jesus. All right. It's time to